all you have. We would be honored if you would join us. What's going on, my far, far away family? How is everyone doing today? Hope everything is going good on your side of the galaxy. Same old thing out here on the Outer Rim. There's a fight for power in the underworld since Jabba's passing. And the Republic is trying to capture all the remnants of the Empire. A galaxy in turmoil. Not much new in the way of galaxies. And not really that much new for me. Okay, real quick. I want to let everyone know that Lightsaber Radio is live on YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook. So if you would like to watch us record live, I will put the links to all of that in the show notes. And because of how good LSR is doing here on this platform and over on the LSR platform. So we have decided to move this show to Wednesday. Trying to get more of a mix for everybody. Plus, we have a new show in the works, and we are trying to get that ready for release before the end of the year. So this show might change again depending on that show. We at Swaycast are trying our best to fill you up with as much Star Wars as possible. Give you a whole bunch of different content. But enough of all that. You didn't come here to hear about all that. We are here to talk about The Ruler 2. A great story of an amazing Dark Lord of the Sith. And when we left that story last week, Darth Bane had just laid waste to Hedden and his assassins. He defeated them so easily, like the almighty boot to the small buck. Then he committed to beat the crap out of his apprentice. He almost killed her, until she said she had the secret to creating a holocron. So let's see where they're at now. Winter was still a new and not entirely welcome phenomenon in Rusan. Originally, it had been a temperate world. Its climate controlled and moderated by the vast boreal forests that dominated the planet's surface. But during the prolonged conflict between the Brotherhood of Darkness and the Army of Light, millions of hectares of old-growth trees had been decimated, turning a huge swath of Rusan's northern hemisphere into a desolate and arid wasteland. Alone, the dramatic changes in the geographic features of the world might not have been enough to affect a significant climatic shift. However, the damage to the environment left the world more vulnerable to the terrible devastation of the Thought Bomb. In the wake of Khan's ultimate weapon, a powerful force nexus was created, an invisible maelstrom of dark and light side energies capable of permanently altering the planet's weather patterns. As a result, even in the regions of the planet where the forest still stood, snow, a rarity in generations gone past, became a regular yearly occurrence. The unprecedented winters typically lasted only a few months. But they were particularly brutal on an ecosystem that had evolved in a much warmer clime. Some of the flora and fauna of Rusan, like the humans who still inhabited the world, had learned to adapt. Other species simply died off. Over the years, Darovit had learned there were three keys to surviving the harsh cold. The first key was to always dress in lairs. His hooded overcloak was a gift from a farmer he had treated for a bad case of fungal rot. The thick sweater beneath had been offered as payment by a miner after Darovid mended the man's foot. He'd accidentally crushed it with his own pneumatic jack. In fact, every garment on his person, the long-sleeved shirt, his heavy trousers, his warm padded boots, the fur-lined glove on his left hand, and the custom-made cuff covering his amputated stump, had been given to him by locals who had come to his isolated home seeking aid from the healing hermit. The second key to surviving the winter wind and snow was to stay dry. 
he learned to watch the sky, seeking shelter at the slightest sign of precipitation. If he allowed his clothes to become wet, hypothermia could easily set in before he was able to find help. It was one of the disadvantages that came with living alone deep inside the forest. But Daravid had become too accustomed to his life of solitude to give it up now. In his first years, he had been a wandering vagabond, exploring the wilds of Rusan as he traveled between the small pockets of civilization scattered across the land. But as he learned to hunt and forage for himself, he found fewer and fewer reasons to venture into the towns and villages he came across. Six years ago, he had wearied of his nomadic existence. Locating a suitably remote location beneath a large stand of sheltering trees, he had constructed a simple hut of branches and mud. The hut gave him a sense of permanence and stability, while still allowing him to enjoy the inner peace he had found in his self-imposed isolation. There were no other human settlements within ten kilometers of his home, and even the closest bouncer colony was almost five kilometers away. Yet that didn't mean he was without visitors. From the teachings of the bouncers and the experiences of his youthful travels, he had become wise in the lore of herbal medicines and natural remedies. Three or four times a month, he would be visited by someone imploring him to treat some malady or injury. Daravid never turned these people away, asking only that in return they respect his privacy. Though often patients bestowed small gifts on him, like the clothes he now wore, as tokens of their gratitude. The third key to surviving the inhospitable Rusan winters was to never venture out at night. Bone-chilling temperatures, the chance of becoming lost and unable to find shelter, and even the occasional predator, made risking the darkness a dangerous and foolish proposition. Yet here Daravit was in the dead of night, his feet crunching over the wind-crusted snow. He'd left the warmth of his hut many hours behind him as he set out to see with his own eyes if the rumors he'd heard from many of his recent patients were true. Daravid angry? No, he whispered to the small green-furred bouncer hovering above him. Just curious. For reasons he still didn't fully understand, the bouncers had developed a particular fascination with him. During the day, there were always two or three of them circling his domicile and each time he left his hut, at least one of the unusual creatures accompanied him. Perhaps they felt responsible for his well-being after rescuing him from the cavern of the Thought Bomb. Or maybe they were drawn to him by their shared vocations. The bouncers eased the mental anguish of those suffering or in pain, and Daravid had chosen to share his healing talents with any who came to him seeking succor. It was even possible they simply found him entertaining or amusing, though in truth, Daravit didn't know if bouncers had a sense of humor. He had quickly grown used to their constant company. They were gentle companions, and they seemed to sense when he was in the mood for conversation, and when he just wished to be left alone with his thoughts. We love bringing you more Star Wars, and it is because of our partners that we can do this week after week. So we invite you to be one of those partners. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep this going. Your support will give us the ability to create future episodes, as well as provide you with the best sounding show on your playlist. And to express our appreciation, we will give you a shout out on our mid-series show that we do in the middle of every book. You will also be automatically entered in all future giveaways. All you have to do is go to the show notes and click that listener support link. Now let's get back to the show. 
Most of the time, he found their presence calm and soothing, though some bouncers were less soothing than others. The young female accompanying him now, Yoon, seemed to be more talkative than her compatriots. Daravid Paul now. Not yet, he whispered. Two of Rusan's three sisters' moons were waxing full tonight. Their light reflecting off the silver layer of frost and the white blanket of snow that had accumulated over the past few weeks. Daravid was crouched behind a copse of trees, leaning on his walking stick for support and reaching out with the stump of his right hand to push the branches aside so he could peer through without being spotted. Through the vapor clouds of his own breath, he studied the scene that confirmed the rumors were true. The Jedi had returned to Rusan. Daravid had openly scoffed the first time a patient mentioned that the Republic was going to build a monument to honor those who had fallen on Rusan. It made no sense to undertake such a project now, Daravid had argued, a decade after the battle, yet there was no denying what he saw through the branches. A large plot of land on the edge of the forest had been cleared of snow, revealing the frozen scrub-covered fields beneath. The perimeter had been marked with stakes and surveyor's chains, and the groundbreaking had already begun. The deep furrows of soil dug up by the construction droids to lay the foundations struck Daravid as a wound upon the planet itself. Several dozen large stones were scattered about the site. Each brought to Rusan from the birth world of one of the dead Jedi the monument was meant to honor. To Daravid's eye, the alien rocks stuck out like a Wookiee in a crowd of Jawas unwelcome interlopers defacing the Rusan landscape. They have no right to be here, he whispered angrily. Hurting nobody, Yoon suggested. This land is only just now beginning to heal itself from their criffing war, he answered. It's taken ten years for the people to put this all behind them. Now the Jedi want to open old wounds. Senate approved, not Jedi. I don't care what the official story says. I know the Jedi are behind this. It will lead to trouble. Trouble? Yoon was too young to remember the war that had ravaged her world. She hadn't witnessed the senseless death and suffering that drove hundreds of bouncer colonies into madness. Damaged beyond all hope of salvation, the wounded bouncers had projected thoughts of pain and torment, attacking and even killing other living creatures until they were slain by Jedi teams sent to wipe them out. The Jedi and their war nearly destroyed Rusan, Daravid told her. Countless thousands of men, women, and children died. The forests burned, and your species was hunted almost to extinction. Sith started war. The Sith couldn't have had a war on their own. They needed someone to fight, and Hoth was more than willing to throw his Jedi followers against them, Daravid argued, wondering how much the Bouncers, and Yun in particular, knew of his past. Both sides were equally to blame. Daravid guilty. It was a statement of fact, rather than a question. Maybe, the young man admitted, leaning on his walking stick. But trouble seems to follow the Jedi wherever they go. And I'm not going to sit back and watch so they can destroy this world a second time. Apart from the construction droids, the dig site was deserted. 
The organic crews only worked during the light of day. Crouching low and holding his walking stick parallel to the ground at his side, Darvid crept out from the cover of the trees. Peace. Calm. Yoon projected after him, trying to soothe his anger. But she wasn't bold enough to follow him out into the open, and he ignored her pleas until he'd crossed beyond the range of her telepathic communication. Daravid wasn't strong in the Force. That was part of the reason he failed in his attempts to join both the Jedi and the Sith. But he did have a minor affinity for it, enough to allow him to creep through the dig site unseen and unnoticed by the semi-intelligent construction droids. Construction droids were employed only for simple basic tasks. The majority of the work on the monument would be done by a crew using heavy machinery and hover sleds. Moving quickly, Darvit made his way to the nearest sled, crouching down out of sight behind it. He had come well prepared, stashing a large supply of powdered tass root and two handfuls of crushed petals from the flowers of the vine in the pockets of his overcloak. Individually, the two substances were harmless, yet when mixed together and dampened, they had a startling interaction. With his good hand, he pried open the sled's maintenance panel just below the control box and stuffed four simple petals into the repulsor coils. Next, he sprinkled a pinch of powdered tass root over the petals. Then, as a final touch, he scooped up a handful of snow, letting it melt in his glove so it would drip down into the mixture. There was a soft hiss and a sharp alkaline smell as the elements combined to form a highly corrosive paste that began to eat its way through the repulsor coils. Daravid snapped the sled's maintenance cover back in place. Wispy tendrils of brown-green smoke wafted out from underneath it. Darvid spent the next hour moving from sled to sled, pausing whenever a construction droid wandered past in its pre-programmed assignments, oblivious to the vandal in their midst. By the time he got back to where Yoon was still waiting for him, every single hover sled had been disabled. Temporary solution will replace. Repulsor coils are expensive, Darvid said, and they're always in high demand. They should set them back at least a week. Then what? I've got a few more tricks up my sleeve for our Jedi friends. He assured the little bouncer. This was only the beginning. Light soon. Home now? Darvid glanced up and saw the faint glow of the first of Rusan's twin suns peeking over the horizon. Home. He agreed. This chapter starts off by talking about Xana's cousin, Darvid. How he has adapted to Rusan's ever-changing climbing and learned to survive and take care of himself. Now, he had decided to stay on Rusan. He had been there ever since the end of the war. The war that had devastated that planet, causing all kind of weird weather anomalies. So I guess it used to snow every once in a while there. And now it snows all the time. And Darvid had to find a way to survive. He built a hut and most of his clothes came from the locals. Now, he is a healer and uses his ability in the force for good. His very limited abilities from what was said before. Because all that the Sith and Jedi had done to him, he still held an ill will towards them, blaming them for the way the things turned out. So when he learned of the monument, Derevin knew what he had to do. Even though the bouncer told him that the Republic sanctioned the monument, Derevin was bound to stop them by any means necessary, or at least slow them down. Three weeks had passed since Xana had presented her master with the data card 
that it almost cost the young apprentice her life. Bain had used that time to study the data card's contents carefully, analyzing every tiny scrap of information Hedden had assembled about Belia Darzu. He cross-referenced much of the data with his own sources, verifying everything he could to authenticate Hedden's research. And Bain was now confident that everything the old man had discovered was true. Belia's experiments in Sith alchemy had revealed the secrets that allowed her to surround herself with a techno-beast army. Even more impressive, at least from Bane's perspective, Belia had successfully created her own holocron. And there was strong evidence to support the theory that the holocron she created, the repository of all her knowledge, was still hidden somewhere in her stronghold on Tython. Bane ran the final diagnostics check in his vessel. He couldn't afford to have anything break down on the upcoming journey. The hyperspace route into the deep core was treacherous, and if something went wrong, there was no chance of anyone coming along to find him. He would die a cold and lonely death, a frozen corpse floating in a metal coffin around the black hole at the galaxy's heart. The mystic systems all appear to be in perfect working order. One of the new Xenar-designed infiltrator series, the Mystic was a medium-sized, long-range fighter Bane had anonymously acquired through his network of frontmen and shadowy suppliers. Built to carry up to six passengers, infiltrators were armed with light weapons and equipped with minimal plating, the focus of the model being on speed and maneuverability. The Mystic had been customized with the addition of a Class IV hyperdrive, enabling her to outrun virtually any other vessel she encountered. Though there was room on the vessel for both Master and Apprentice, Bane had decided Xana would not accompany him on his trip to Thython. But she was not going to simply wait on Ambria for his return. Along with the study of the data card, Bane had also spent a great deal of time thinking about the Orbalisks clinging to his flesh. Though it was possible that he would discover new information on Tython, unlocking the final secrets of creating a holocron, it was also possible that Belia had succeeded using the exact same process he had employed in his failed attempts. Bane still could not discount the theory that the Orbalisks were responsible for his failure, bleeding him of the dark side energies he needed to draw on to complete the procedure. There were other considerations as well. Twice now, he had lost himself in a blood rage, thought and reason replaced by the mindless urge to destroy anything and anyone in range. The first time it happened, he had left their camp in ruins, a foolish and pointless waste of resources. The second time had almost been far more costly. Had he succeeded in killing Xana, he still would have found Hedden's data card on her, but he would also have been forced to find a new apprentice. A decade of training would have been lost, thrown away, because of his temporary madness. Xana had saved herself by explaining the motives behind her actions. She had acted in perfect accordance with her master's teachings, a fact Bane should have realized on his own. But the Orbalisks blinded him to her skilled machinations, and he now understood that the raw power they granted him came at the expense of subtlety and cunning. So while he went to Tython to face the dangers and defenses of Belia's lost stronghold, Xana was undertaking a mission of her own. Now it jumps back to Xana and Darth Bane. 
Bain had been studying the data car for three weeks, learning all he could about the path to Tython and all he could about Bella Darcy. Bella Darza was a female Shia Du. She reigned as a Dark Lord of the Sith during the last quarter of the New Sith War. A born shapeshifter, Darza typically appeared as a tall human woman with short brown hair. In 1250 BBY, she led the revived Sith Empire at the beginning of a period called the Sithic War. An accomplished Sith alchemist, Lord Darza studied an obscure force technique known as Mechadur, which led her to concoct a virus capable of transforming his victim into a mutilated cyborg. Techno Beast. Using a hidden fortress on the planet Tython, she created an army of Techno Beast. Then she campaigned against the Galactic Republic and its Jedi protector. In 1230 BBY, the Dark Lord had fallen victim to a conspiracy when she was assassinated by other Sith and her followers. Thank you, Wikipedia, for your help. Couldn't have done it without you. Now let's get back to Bane. Now, Bane had double checked all the Hidden Head fans with his own archives of Sith literature. And from what he had learned, Hedden's information wasn't wrong. So Bane prepared to journey to Tython in search of Darza's holocron, hoping it held the secrets that would help him build his own. In the meantime, he would have Xana seek out a way to remove the Orbalisks, just in case they were the reason he kept failing to build his own holocron. Hedden's ship was magnificent. A custom-built cruiser, 80 meters in length, she could comfortably hold 20 passengers. Yet only a single pilot was required to operate her. Every detail of her construction and design had been made to Hedden's precise and lavish specifications. Equipped with enough firepower and armor plating to take on a small capital ship, the interior was still luxurious enough to host a formal dinner for planetary dignitaries. No expense had been spared. The vessel, being as much a symbol of his incredible wealth, as it had been a mode of transportation. There was only one thing Xana disliked about it. He had called it the Loranda after his mother. She reached forward and punched the controls, marveling at the smooth takeoff and responsiveness of the yoke as she guided the ship up and out of Ambria's atmosphere. In two days, she would be touching down on Coruscant. No doubt she'd have to bribe a spaceport administrator to keep her arrival off the official books. The Loranda was still registered to Hedden, and her arrival would draw immediate attention if it was logged with the proper authorities. Fortunately, it was common practice for the nobles of Serena to make frequent unscheduled and unreported landings, even on Coruscant. The wealthy weren't bound by the rules of the average Republic citizen, and portraying herself as a servant sent to bribe a port administrator upon landing wouldn't strike anyone as unusual. Arriving on world without drawing undue attention would be the easy part of her mission. Gaining access to the archives in the Jedi Temple would be much more difficult. Bane was taking a tremendous gamble in sending her there. They had spent the past decade hiding from the Jedi, and now she was about to enter the very heart of the Order. But she couldn't second-guess his decision, not when she had been partly responsible. It was she who had planted the first seeds of doubt in her master's mind about the Orbalisks, and now her scheme had come to fruition. Bane had decided, for her sake and the sake of the Sith, that he had to free himself from the infestation. Nothing in Freedon Nad's original experiments indicated that the Orbalisks could be extracted from the host, and Bane's own research into the subject had failed to uncover anything to the contrary. But the Jedi Archives were the greatest single collection of assembled knowledge in the known galaxy. 
If an answer existed, they would find it there. Her master had taken every precaution to keep her true identity hidden while she visited the archives. Through his network of mysterious informants and shadowy contacts, he had assembled a list of names and background portfolios for virtually every member of the Jedi Order. From this list, he had chosen one name that suited their purpose, Nalia Adolu. Nalia was a Padawan of approximately Xana's age, under the tutelage of Anna Wenchi, a famously reclusive Pingani Jedi Master on the Outer Rim world of Polis. Over the past week, Xana had memorized every detail of her profile and history, along with the history of Master Anno, so she could pass herself off as the young woman. The cover story was simple. Xana would claim her master was studying a rare breed of parasitic organism that lived beneath the ice-covered surface of Polos. Eager to compare the newly discovered life form with similar species from other worlds, but loath to leave the quiet of his homeworld, he had sent his Padawan to gather research materials from the Jedi Archive. Yet she would need more than a plausible cover story to maintain her disguise when she presented herself to the chief librarian and asked for permission to view the archives. Xana and Nalia were of the same age. They were roughly the same height and shared the same athletic build. They both had long flowing hair, though Xana had dyed her locks a deep lustrous black to match those of the other woman. It had been five years since Nalia had last left her master's side in Polos, so there was little chance of running into anyone who knew her well enough to recognize Xana as an imposter. But even if her appearance didn't give her away, there was one final element to consider. Throughout her mission, she would be surrounded by servants of the light. If they sensed the dark side in her, she would be instantly exposed. The secrecy she and Ben had worked so hard to preserve would be destroyed. Everything they'd labored for over the past decade, everything they'd accomplished, would be for naught. She would surely be captured, possibly condemned to death, and her master would be hunted down and slain. The only way the plan would work was if she could use the power of Sith sorcery to mask her strength while simultaneously projecting an aura of light side energy. It was a complicated spell, one she had never tried before. It required a balance of strength and delicacy, and she had practiced it continuously in the weeks leading up to her departure. Yet despite her best efforts, there were still moments when her concentration slipped and her true nature showed through. She just had to hope that if it happened on Coruscant, none of the Jedi would be close enough to notice. So Xana takes Hayden's luxury ship as Bane flies his own ship. He is headed to Tython and she is headed to the Jedi Temple on Coruscant. She must infiltrate the temple and gain access to the Archive, it being the greatest library that there was. It might hold the answers to removing the crustaceans from her master. Bane had taken every precaution to keep her hidden, finding a Jedi Master and Padawan that spent a lot of time away so she could act like she was the apprentice. But the hard part was going to be her masking her dark side power. She would have to use Sith sorcery to complete her mission. And for the past couple weeks, she had practiced relentlessly. And that's where the chapter came to an end. A good chapter, not too much in action, but I think it is building up suspense for the ones to come. Okay, let's get to the quote for this week. And I couldn't find who wrote the quote, so we will have to call them anonymous. But they said, be fearless in the pursuit of what sets your soul on fire. If you have a dream, an idea that keeps you awake at night, 
one of those ideas that you can't stop thinking about. When you are not doing something that relates to it, you feel like you are letting the world down. That is a soul fire type of idea. And you need to pursue that idea with all that you have. Every bit of energy you can muster because it will change everything. But you have to dig deep to make sure it is that type of idea. You don't want to go after a flicker of a fire idea. You want to go after that set your soul on a blaze type of idea. If you know you got that, then let nothing stand in your way of achieving it. Okay, I've rambled enough for this episode. Join us next week as we cover Chapter 17 of Darth Bane's Rule of Two. Hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Sway. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can find us and subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shit and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel, sound designed by Theodore Thompson, researched by Tammy Turner. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.